This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema, and Hans is not with me today. Hans is a very sleepy boy this evening, because he's got to wake up and go to his day job at 5.30 in the morning. Uh, I'm not used to him pressing for earlier times like he has been on these last couple of shows, but it's becoming very inconvenient, uh, which it is what it is. We got two guests tonight, so we've got usual roundup of people here. Uh, we have J. David Osborne, and we have Kelby Losack. How are you fellas doing? The host of the Agitator podcast. Doing good. Excellent. Doing great. Doing great. You missed it. The perfect intro uh, just drove by. Had like sirens going down the street and shit. It was like, oh, fuck. That would have been tight. Oh, actually, <laughs> damn. They went the other way. There was some more. but That's constantly happening. I live in Queens and I live like uh, a couple blocks from the project. So there's just constantly sometimes helicopters going around outside looking for people. Uh, police cars going off. It's very, uh, very troublesome. Yeah. So, uh, where are you guys based out of? I'm in Texas. I'm in the Gulf Coast, uh, dirty south, south of Houston. Uh, got the best of all, all worlds. We got swamp, beach, city, all kinds of shit. So it's very well rounded. Yeah, it's a well-rounded place. I like it, and I hate it because hurricanes be fucking my shit up all the time. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I'm in Oklahoma City. I, uh, I've i lived in Oklahoma for probably the majority of my life, and I've just been all over. I could give you all the details of all the different Oklahoma towns that I lived in, but I think that that would probably uh not be very interesting so i'm just i'm in okc it's cool man it's cool. we have good restaurants we have uh i live close to a chick-fil-a and a taco bell so we got all the all the good shit nice uh for some reason i was under the impression you were in the pacific northwest did you ever live out there i did yeah i lived in uh portland for a while i lived in i lived there for three years um that was my adventure outside of oklahoma I needed to get away, so I moved to a suburb there. I drove an ice cream truck in Portland for quite some time, and then I worked as a concierge at uh, Fountain Plaza downtown. And uh, since this is the movies podcast, that was that was the place that I was where I was in my only movie that I've ever been in, which was called Green Room. I was oh, one nice. of the Nazis in Green Room. <laughs> Uh, that rules. That's a that's a great movie to make a debut in. I my first movie was uh, was Goodwill Hunting, and I'm nowhere to what? be found in that movie. Yeah, I was a little boy. They were oh, shooting okay. in my neighborhood, and um, I remember everybody was so excited to see Robin Williams when that was happening, and nobody gave a shit about Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Everybody was just crowded around Robin Williams getting autographs and all that. Ben mm -hmm. Affleck and Matt Damon were just nobodies uh, yeah. at that time. Yeah. Uh, Green yeah, Rooms. Uh, that 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 movie. Uh, I'm a pretty big fan of uh what's that filmmaker jeremy saulnier right yeah 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 so i i got to throw a beer uh, like one of those sugar beer bottles at anton yelchin in the movie um mm -hmm. but you know when it was set up i was scared as fuck because you know i showed up and i was one of the extras and everybody showed up in all their like punk gear and then mm -hmm. they wanted, they figured out who, like, who wants to play one of the neo-Nazis and nobody wanted to do it except for me. So they shaved my head and uh, I got to do some cool shit because I was the only one willing to, <laughs> to, to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was really intimidating actually, because I'd never been on a film set before and you have this big crane 
camera in your face and I'm not super athletic. So even though I just had to literally throw this beer bottle at like a blanket that they had set up, I was mm-hmm. like shitting my pants. Like, what if I fuck this up and looks had looks you, stupid? Had you uh, had you ever been bald before? Because that would be my concern. <laughs> I would I would feel like shit. What if my head is so misshapen and I just look like one of the, like what, what is that Goonies monster? Uh, <laughs> Sloth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. a big risk too. I have uh, been bald before. I, I used to work at Eddie Bauer, and I went in, and my manager was this black lady, and I came in bald one day. And she was not fucking with it. She was like, you look racist. I was like, well, you know. <laughs> you look racist. I think I like to think that that's why they, that's why they, they, they picked me because when I'm bald, I look super racist. Some people just have racist face. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I guess I have that. Wow. That's, uh, that's, well, that's perfect for, for that film. Uh, I was mm-hmm. a big fan of Blue Ruin as well. I, I, you know, I didn't really enjoy that uh, third movie he did that make him Blair wrote that went directly to netflix i think it was called hold the dark no Um, that was a mess yeah i thought so as well i for whatever reason it just seemed very tonally inconsistent uh, especially comparing Mm -hmm. like the first half of the movie with the second half um is he up to anything lately has he done anything new i know he was supposed to do season three a true detective Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. something fell through with that maybe it was like a conflict with nick pizzolato and i think he only wound up doing a couple episodes instead well, if he had a conflict with Nick Pizzolatto, that makes a lot of sense because Nick Pizzolatto has a fucking conflict with everybody. Mm. He's a really difficult dude to see because Kelby and I are from the crime world. So we kind of knew all these people before they blew up. So I was like friends with Nick Pizzolatto, friends, right? Facebook friends. Sure. With this guy, you know, like before. And he he's always been... Uh, in crime fiction, there's this subgenre of person called the crime fiction dad who's in their mid forties and likes to drink whiskey and, you know, talk about, you know, like, Oh, if anybody ever, uh, you know, came after my kids, I'd, I'd go on a ramp, you know, like that kind of like kind of grim dark, sure. uh, Ben, Ben Percy's another person who's like this. He's a, a writer who talks with this like really fake deep, you know, like he's been gargling glass accent or whatever. Um, but, uh, with Sonia, I think that there was a TV show, that wasn't true detective for a while, but uh, I don't know, man, he might've just gotten fucking chewed up by that, by that system, which I think, I think happens kind of a lot. I think he's got uh, I don't know if I'm breaking any news here. I think he's got some sort of uh, Western TV show. He's trying to work out with Ben Shapiro's daily wire company. They have um, a subsidiary called bonfire legend, which used to be Cinestate before that. And, um, a friend of mine and I had scripts tied up with Cinestate before the whole Me Too scandal happened. Uh-huh. And when that fell apart, obviously everything's off the table. Uh, they rebranded as Bonfire Legend, did the home invasion movie Shut In, which brought mm-hmm. Vincent Gallo out of retirement. And it seems like their scripted film division hasn't really taken off. They also did the documentary, uh, and this is like the only popular one that that wound up sticking at all. What is a woman? Which is the Matt Walsh kind of like <laughs> conservative Christian right wing. Yeah, uh, we're gonna question all like these academics about what is a woman. Uh, seems like their their film division's not really taken off, and their their next attempt is gonna be maybe a series since Yellowstone is the big thing at the moment, and Nick Pizzolatto seems like the guy that they want to shepherd that and um, be like showrunner or or whatever. Mm. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought that he, he might lean 
that way, but that's cool. Yeah, mm. that's cool. I mean, I didn't watch, uh, I, I turned True Detective season two off after the second episode because the first episode did something that I thought was really bold where, the, you know, Colin Farrell gets shotgunned in the chest mm-hmm. by a guy in a bird mask. And yeah. I thought that was so cool and such an interesting direction because it had this Lynchian, um, like tease right that he was going to be in this kind of you know red room other world thing and i thought that that was what they were going to do for the rest of the series like mix in the cop stuff with like a more kind of lynchian angle and then when he woke up in episode two and it's like oh thank god i had a bulletproof vest on so i can take a shotgun blast point blank to the chest i was like Meh, not for me which yeah. by the way you can't i've worn different bulletproof vests before I'm not taking a shotgun to the fucking chest. I do remember them bringing him back for that episode because I I had a very similar reaction and I was, you know, it was, it was conflicting because I felt like he was the most interesting part of that show, but to pull the, uh, you know, the whole Marvel studios, Hey, he's still alive. Kind of ruse after that. Uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of that. I did revisit uh, season two of true detective, I think in 2020, uh, just during quarantine when, when there was nothing to do, going through a bunch of different TV shows. I had a much warmer opinion of it uh, the second time that I watched it. Yeah. But uh, I don't know, still nothing compares to that, that first season. Now they're doing it without him. Now there's going to be a fourth mm-hmm. season that doesn't even have Nick Pizzolatto writing the script. I, I don't know who's helming it at the moment. I think it's like Barry Jenkins. I it, or. I thought it was a girl. Like I thought they got a girl to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the director is going to be a female. I think the producer and maybe the writer is uh, a well-known guy. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I think that um, I didn't see season three. Mm-hmm. I do think that season one it was really good TV, though. I really liked season one. It uh, it mixed in those Lovecraft elements just the right amount with the yellow king and everything like that and i thought they got a lot of the the kind of feel for that southern louisiana you know kind of you know cicadas always chirping kind of atmosphere down really good Mm -hmm. and uh and of course matthew mcconaughey and woody harrelson are just really good as a buddy cop duo so i liked season one a lot but that was where it ended for me uh, do you feel like for you two, noir is your your top genre as far as film or or literature? Some kind of niche subset of noir, always. I'd, I'd say probably, yeah. Okay. Uh, so what is what is your backstory, Kel? Because I'm I'm more familiar with you, uh, uh, J. David Osborne, because uh, I was kind of uh, in a peripheral circle to you when you were doing uh, a lot of the publishing way back in the day, because uh, I founded Clash Books under my real name. Uh, mm-hmm. And then that got taken over by, uh, I think you you know, Christoph and Lisa. Mm-hmm. Uh, they run that now. And I just kind of bounced and I washed my hands of, of the whole hmm. literary scene and wound up here. So I, I didn't I, know that. I yeah. know Christoph and Lisa really well. I had no idea that you were involved in Clash I created it as mine. I, it, they don't put my name on the website for whatever reason. I mentioned that to them too. Um, myself and Joel and Matt Guell, who's a Spanish artist, founded that in I think like 2015 or wow. so. Yeah. It was my one contribution. It was really just like, I want to start a press so I can just put my own books out without like yeah. self-publishing stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I did. And then I was like, all right, I'm bored. You guys can 
handle everything from well, I've, I've known Lisa for like 10 years and I've known Christoph for almost that much time. And uh, so that's always kind of colored how I looked at Clash books, but mm-hmm. knowing that knowing that you started it makes me like it a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do know that uh, our homie Grant Walmack, who just dropped Black Gypsies with Broken River, he's part of the kind of collective that we got going on. Um, he and Christoph had this thing, uh, what they call it back in the day before it was like new English literature, I think mm. is what it was. And then that he told me that it folded that Christoph, you know, they parted ways, whatever. And it folded into clash. He said he got, uh, he bought it from somebody or whatever. I remember this other entity, which now we're finding out is you. Wow. <laughs> so wait, so he, was, he, 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 you sold it to him? Is that, is that I didn't how that se- worked? No, I didn't sell it at all. Uh, I just kind of was like, this is, you know, it was around the same time that I started getting into making short films and comedy sketches. So I uh, created a couple of YouTube channels. I, I started going under the pseudonym uh, Lores Wonderbread. And prior to that, I had put out a novel in 2013. And then I put out a novella through the Clash name. And I published a couple of people under Clash in 2015 and maybe early 2016. And at that point, I was just kind of like, I was working with Christoph at the time. He had just brought in Lisa. And um, I was like, you know, I don't really have anything uh, as far as like an idea of where to take this. Uh, You know, if you want to just keep doing your thing with it for the time being, have at it. There was never like a formal thing like Clash is yours. It just became that way. And I was like, well, I'm not really writing any, I'm not interested in writing books. I'm, I'm interested in shooting and, and getting better verse with the camera and um, collaborating with people in like a visual medium. So it just uh, evolved from there and uh, it's become their thing. This is a deep piece of micro indie lit lore. Yeah. I that guess is so. just really tickling me. Uh, <laughs> I'm really enjoying this. I had no idea. Well, um, you know, clash, has some some good books they have el nash's book they have unathi slash's book which is good um i i used to criticize clash in the early days for not really having a a solid identity i didn't really know what it was that they were trying to do with that it just seemed like it seemed like clout chasing you know like Mm -hmm. just kind of whatever they could do to kind of get get books out there but i think that i think that now that it's all kind of stabilized. I actually don't really, I don't have a, a really a bad thing to say about them necessarily. It's, it was a, it was a rough start that kind of evened its, its way out. I mean, I, I don't know. I never pictured that uh, my, the, the publishing house that I found it would be like a big hub for LGBTQ trans everything. But uh, I don't know. I kind of got the right lighting for that tonight. This is very bisexual. Yeah, you do, you do. Head. Yeah, you got some pretty bisexual um, ass lighting. Uh, but you know, it, it's uh, it, you know, even though I don't have like a part of it now, it's kind of uh, interesting. It's just like a, a third party perspective to see how that's where that started and where that is right now. Um, but yeah, why don't we get? I knew they of... didn't come up with clash books on their own. I knew that wasn't them. I knew I knew that well, that was. Are they sure your friends? Uh, you know, we were good friends for a while, and I haven't really spoken to either one of them in, in quite some time, but it wasn't like mm-hmm. any sort of, uh, uh, you know, clash uh, that occurred between <laughs> us or, or anything of that matter. Just kind of, you know, distancing, I suppose. 
cool yeah you know, my yeah. scene's very different from what their scene currently is so yeah there's not a yeah. lot of overlap there right right well you're the lgbtq king now <laughs> right, of, yeah of the of the liga bigga tigga fucking squad yeah i need a <laughs> i need a good hefty paycheck is what i'm thinking after this conversation i don't know i might have to uh might have to get a piece back in on that i never formally agreed to you know forfeit it but uh listen we you could on, i maybe i could <laughs> we, we we'll see we'll see how it goes um we're gonna be talking a little bit about uh you know reading tonight what a different kind of re reading subtitles on a film <laughs> so <laughs> we are talking about uh a film released in june in korea has not been formally released in america yet or in the west uh we're talking about decision to leave which is park chan wook's latest movie uh i am curious to get you guys' opinion on Park Chan-wook. I know on your Agitator podcast, you mostly cover, it seems like, Japanese films. Mm -hmm. seems like mm -hmm. the big hang-up is Japanese movies. Uh, mm -hmm. I have to say, Korean films are, are more my forte, my specialty. So, uh, you know, uh, as far as Japanese directors go, uh, I've talked a whole lot about, like, Takashi Kitano on this program before I'm a big fan of him. Uh, certainly, a lot of his sensibilities I had in my head when I was doing uh, Mass State Lottery. And just how he, um, you know, does the crime genre and police procedural films in such a weird and unique way. Um, but for those who are listening to this program, why don't you just tell uh, my audience a little bit about Agitator, the podcast, so they can give that a listen. So Agitator is uh, started off with David and I. We talk on the phone like all the time. We're two dads, uh, artists. We're both you know part of the what broken river developed into just this writing like collective of just homies putting out each other's shit and hyping it up um like a literary wu-tang or whatever mm. and yeah we're bros so we chat all the time and just decided to uh sort of explore why Mike is such a big idol to us in podcast form because that was a big like the things we talk about in agitator the movies and shit that we talk about was just part of our conversations in general and we did the first episode uh i think it was like a month later we decided to talk i wanted to talk about visitor q i wanted to just, you know jump in the deep end with the nasty pervy shit and um it was like a month after that that we did Itchy the Killer and then it was like okay let's do this thing and it's what it's turned into is kind of like a developing a like a live art manifesto through the lens of or the filter of Japanese cinema and anime and shit and now uh rap as well because we have like we've always had rappers on like kind of from the beginning and now it's like we're having the entire pow records label on uh through september and october so it's kind of just turned into this anime hip-hop uh culture thing that's also a way for us to shill our shit and sort of develop our craft through the podcast format now, yeah, we like to we like yeah. to talk about, you know, things like, uh, you know, cultural appropriation, because, you know, because it's Japanese movies that are largely influenced by, uh, you know, Western cinema and earlier Eastern cinema. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are very DIY. A lot of them have an aesthetic sensibility that's very different from Western cinema. 
Uh, and it's, it's really been a, a good in, and inspiring uh, project for me in my own writing, because through talking to Kelby <clears throat> over the, you know, 60 episodes that we've done so far, we've kind of been able to suss out what it is we actually like about storytelling uh, and what we like about certain visuals and music, stuff that doesn't necessarily translate into writing, but that uh, kind of has its own place in providing a jumping off point for doing that kind of thing. Man, the Japanese love to steal, don't they? You know, I was just reading <laughs> up on, uh, I'm not too familiar with video games, uh, but I just got reading the Wikipedia page of uh, Hideo Kojima, who's obviously like a very famous a guy. guy. And uh, I had also read the, uh, the, um, the book Itchy Tasty, which is about the, the, the development of the Resident Evil series when it was under mm. the, the um, leadership of one guy and he did Resident Evil 1, 2, 3, 4, and then that was it. Um, and uh, you just notice like they just blatantly steal everything. They just take everything without mm. any subtlety at all. Like that's, the Snake Plissken character yeah. uh, being the source for, you know, uh, the Metal Gear Solid and all that. And it's just like one-to-one taking it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, just something I think is amusing about that. Um, right, right, because we have such a, a stigma, and by we I mean Westerners or, uh, you know, Americans as being the originators of these things. Mm-hmm. So there's a real kind of quest for originality in the things that we create. We want to make sure that something that we create is unique and individual, much like ourselves, because we're precious Americans who are unique and individual. And, you know, the thing that we create has to come forth from that and be its own self-sustained hermetically sealed kind of thing and when you get to more collective honor-based societally engaged societies like uh, people who live in tokyo for example where you're all just kind of rats in a maze right you're living on top of each other and everybody is everybody else everybody looks like each other that kind of thing um (laughs) you uh that's a great soundbite yeah you 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 get you get to the point where you're like well why shouldn't i just take this thing why shouldn't i take it wholesale and make it my own there's the concept of homage where you know i recently watched uh nope and in nope the female protagonist does the akira motorcycle slide Mm. in it right and that's an homage that's but what if you took that just a step further because Kel- Kelby and I are working on a project, which is basically Itchy the Killer 2. And our idea is to just completely steal the IP and write it. And what are they going to do? They're in Japan. Like, I don't know. There's no legal apparatus to stop us from, from doing that. So far as we know, I guess we'll they find can, out. They can sue me. I don't speak Japanese or read it. So. <laughs> well, you, you would uh, probably be targeted by whoever owns the rights in America, which I think is like Magnolia or one of these like niche... Uh, companies. Mm-hmm. I was thinking I, on a similar note, I've been tossing around the idea with uh, my co-host Hans about doing like an American adaptation of Lupin the Third with him oh, as yeah. Lupin. And uh, they stole Lupin to begin with. They didn't have the rights to Lupin. But now Lupin is like a, uh, what's the word, a public domain character. Lupin mm-hmm. the Third is not. But how can you differentiate these two things. Right, right. Yeah. And Kel- Kelby and I noticed that you guys were open for script submissions and we were tossing back and forth the idea of just rewriting the Miike film Agitator mm-hmm. in America, you know, and just like seeing if that had any legs because 
I mean, just do it. And if somebody sues you, then they, I don't know, then they sue you. You just declare bankruptcy or whatever. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's a get out of jail free card. I had, yeah. I mean, the only reason why my production company is like a formal production company now is an LLC is because I got a cease and desist from the Massachusetts lottery over the name of my my film. <laughs> they were like, we, we don't like this. What, what are you doing? There's an X rating yeah. on the trailer. You can't have the, the title here. So I like filed a copyright for Low Res Wonder Bread's Mass State Lottery and then formed this company. And they've mm -hmm. been quiet in the meantime. Yeah, it just depends on how mm -hmm. litigious uh, people are and if they think that they can scare you into hiding your product or, or getting a dime from you. But I mean, I'm not really in to filmmaking for any sort of money. I don't even like the idea of like working on other people's projects in that way just for money, um, which is maybe just because I have like a, a pretty decent day job. But, uh, you know, if it if it came down to it, like if the Massachusetts lottery was really hammering me, I just put the, the movie out on Vimeo for free or or Pirate Bay or something. So to, I like that kind of spirit of like if you if you're getting attacked by one of these giants and fuck it, who cares? Just do the thing mm -hmm. anyway. If you want to make it, make it. I was really inspired by my buddy Patrick Wensink, who wrote a book called Broken Piano for President. Uh, he's gone on to find massive success as a children's book author of the Go Go Gorillas series, which my son really likes. Mine but too. back in the what's that? Oh, he does. Mine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But back in the day, Pat was uh, he wrote this book called Broken uh, Piano for President, and they had a Jack Daniels bottle as their cover. And it was, it was the Jack Daniels label with the title with, you know, Pat's name and Jack Daniels sent them a season and assist letter, them being the publisher, which was Eraserhead at the, or no lazy fascist was the publisher. Um, and the cease and desist letter was so polite because Jack Daniels offered to pay them for a new cover if they changed it from Jack Daniels. Oh, wow. which they use that money to go to a local brewery and have them design the cover. But it went completely viral. Boing Boing published it. And then it just went crazy. And Pat ended up selling uh, 12,000 copies off of that. So agitating and fucking with these big IPs and kind of stirring shit is actually a way to get yourself seen by people. And we have to use every, every trick that we can get because Kelby and I were talking about this earlier, like we're pretty much like in mainstream publishing, like we're cut off because mm -hmm. we've said things that they don't like. <laughs> so, yeah. so we have to figure out how to, you know, we have like Jack on our podcast from the Perfume Nationalist and shit. And it's like, after that, they just sort of write you off. I started so we, beef with some agents at Little Brown uh, directly. So <laughs> just a little bit of that too. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you don't really see people from like your sphere of things also engage in that perfume nationalist sphere of things. But yeah. um, I think there's a lot of like interesting personalities in art that are coming out of that, mm -hmm. that whole world uh, as opposed to the very corporate, this is what we consider like cutting edge or whatever yeah. uh, literature that's going on in like indie publishing or mainstream publishing. Mm -hmm. um, it yeah. and it's difficult too yeah it's really it's uh there are people who we know who have kind of played that game and they've played it all the way to success success being big advances and you know movie deals with ron howard and stuff like that and then and then it doesn't work out 
And then like, where does that leave you? So you play this game for like five or 10 years where you pretend to think things that you don't really believe and, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, just put on this, this whole front and then it doesn't work out. And then, and then what, and then what do you do? Whereas Kelby and I are just constantly saying shit that we're thinking, <laughs> which is not, uh, I don't know. It's, it's not saleable. Hmm. Well, I prefer that energy a hundred percent. I think, um, at least with the people that I've gotten to know through this podcast and everything that is, um, in the long run, I think what is probably more rewarded than, than playing it safe, playing it corporate, mm -hmm. um, is not sterilizing yourself to play the game. Yeah, it's a long game. And what happened, I think, and this might have happened in movies too, you'd know more about this than I would, but I definitely can speak to books. What happened over the past 20 years was a kind of corporate consolidation of power. So the big six became the big five, became the big four. It got narrower and narrower and narrower. So because of that, the people who held the keys to money, exposure, distribution got smaller and smaller and smaller. So the people who wanted access to those outlets for their art became more and more specifically insane and libtarded in order to get to those things, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but the only real answer, and I've said this over and over again, is that this is a long game. I'm 35 years old and most of my favorite authors didn't even write their best shit until they were in their late forties, early fifties. Uh, I have a job. Uh, Kelby has a job. Like we're all just normal people who do normal stuff. And, uh, I'm willing to wait. I'm cool with waiting and just doing things my own way. And, uh, I don't expect to to hit right now, but I think a lot of these people, they want to, right? They're they're very career oriented, and I'm just art oriented, I guess. Uh, how yeah, old the are you, Kelly? Artist. I'm 29. Okay, you're the youngest here. I'm I'm gonna be 32 in a couple of months. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you take a look at a lot of directors, anyway, I definitely had this in my head. Uh, over the last couple of years, they don't really start getting cooking on their debut features until about the age of like 31, 32 years old. And they usually, I mean, kind of similarly, they, they don't hit until oftentimes their forties, their forties mm -hmm. is really when they start to develop a texture and, um, create a, a sort of identity through their, their shooting and editing and whatever the genre that they take root in tends to be. Yeah, mu music is the only art form that's the opposite, right? Music preys on the youth. You have mm -hmm. to have this kind of youthful, I want to go out and dance and party and drink and take drugs and shit like that. Music prefers young people, but if it's movies or books or sculpture or art uh, or poetry, I guess, nobody reads that, but, you know, poetry it's all older people. You have to have a, you have to have a worldview first before you can actually write something that is interesting. So it's, I'm cool. I'm cool with being in a kind of stasis, you know, just writing. And when I put a book out, I don't expect anybody to read it yet because the pieces will just kind of fall together. I think that's a good attitude to have. Oh, go ahead, Kelby. 
yeah you build up a catalog it's kind of like playing the lottery and working at the same time you know the people who might be most successful are like the daily grinders who they pick up their ticket because they're always like that's a big thing around here like we got a lot of corner stores that are big they got the signs out in the windows that are like we have the highest you know payoff rate in texas or whatever and I'm like damn all six of you <laughs> but uh and everybody's always like i mean you don't win if you don't play but you know you also go to work and so like the the noble artist path is kind of like the same thing where it's like you just put in the work you don't like you don't uh give up any part of like your your soul in the in the process of doing the thing but you uh like you keep at it like you know the, your average of hitting it of something hitting goes up the more you put out like i'm gonna have 11 books published by the time i turn 30 in march wow so it's like you just keep doing the shit and i gotta jump on like i uh i'll I'll take credit for getting david's head straight because he got out of writing for a little bit um giving up on the shit but like you uh you just got to keep swinging the sword, man. Like it's not, there's nothing super complicated about it, you know? And I, um, I don't know if, uh, I've been like blessed with vision or something. Cause I've died twice, which is like a little superpower that I have. Um, I'm you've died t- twice. You like yeah. legally pronounced dead. Yeah. Once on the, I, I was, I remember hearing, I don't know, like, how this memory came to be or whatever but like i have this memory of hearing the doctor pronounce me dead actually uh on the operating table and then um another time was in a buddy's bathroom the one and only time i did heroin uh but i forgot where i was going with that i don't know i'm very interested though so what, what was the operation about i had i tore um uh two holes in my stomach uh from eating a lot of meth oh shit yeah so like i uh they had to do a lot of um i had a lot of therapy after that to get to where uh it still feels sometimes like i've got holes in my gut but Mm -hmm. it i had to take this like crazy ass medication too that was like uh it was like $300 $300 a bottle and it came with five capsules and uh that shit was like it worked whatever the fuck it was though but uh yeah yeah I did a lot of drugs uh sold a lot of drugs so I guess I developed the worldview a little bit early on to kind of have that frame of mind and for whatever reason I'm also an art queer who wants to like write shit so and that that's probably the number one reason I'm not welcome in the the prestigious literary circle is because no matter I've tried even exploiting myself being like hey I'm an ex-dope dealer I'm a dirty ghetto kid whatever they're like that's extra why we don't want you (laughs) that's too interesting that's that's too not what everything is that's like popular there now um you you had cited that J. David Osborne here gave up on writing. Is that because of the the nature that things took in the the industry that you were citing that you were talking about not long ago? Or is that separate reasons? 
Well, I went through a, I did go through a dark night of the soul for a really long time where I kind of wondered what I was doing. My, my issue with writing was that in indie terms, I hit really big, really early. And I think that kind of fucked me up. So my first book was called By the Time We Leave Here, We'll Be Friends. And it was set in a Russian gulag. It's a very surreal and uh, short uh, kind of crime fiction book where people, you know, people have like shark teeth and people rip their hearts out and the, the hearts go and do their own thing and stuff. It's kind of magical realism type stuff, but it did really well and sold like 5,000 copies and um, it won a, an award, uh, you know, for like best first or best novel, not best first novel, but best novel. So I, I hit this peak when I was 23, right? And what we talked about <laughs> was that like writing's not a young person's game. It's more of like, you know, you have to have this career where you are consistently putting art out and doing cool things. So I sort of just, nothing after that really reached that kind of peak. And so I was seeing diminishing returns with every book that I did, right? So my second book went from 5,000 to like 800. And then the book after that went from 800 to 500 and then so on and so forth to the point where like books were literally coming out and like, you know, they were doing like a hundred copies in their first month. And so I, that was a kick to the ego. It was like an ego thing, right? You know, it was like, oh, I had, I was here and now I'm here. Uh, Even though both perspectives are, you know, 5,000 copies isn't life-changing you know, sales or anything like that. But um, so I just needed to get a little bit of perspective. And I think where Kelby really helps with that is uh, in the terms of, you know, like, what are you, what are you fucking crying about? Like, I'm a, I'm a new dad. My kid is, uh, my son is 16 months old. He's a pain in the ass sometimes. And uh, occasionally I'll bitch about him and Kelby be like, like, what are you going to do? You're going to put them up for adoption? <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Like, what's the option here? Like, what are you going to do? You either do it or you don't. And I think that that started to repair uh, and also shed light on this ego-based art production, right? Art that's created with an expectation that there's going to be praise and an audience and, and people fawning over you and stuff like that. Uh, I had to divest myself of that as the end goal for art and instead get back to a, you know, why do we make, like, why is it that when I was seven years old and I saw Jurassic Park, I went home and wrote my own version of Jurassic Park and stapled it together and said that it was a book, right? I just did that because I thought it was fucking cool. So why not get back to that? Now, uh, you guys mentioned that you do this podcast, Agitator. Uh, the title's taken from the Takashi Miike film, right? So, with see, th- this is uh, the problem for me mm-hmm. with a lot of these Japanese uh, filmmakers is you take a look at, like, Takashi Miike's IMDb, and it says, like, he's directed 90 films or some, some crazy mm-hmm. amount like that. Yeah, yeah right? it's, it's over 100 now. Yeah. It's over 100. All right how do you even begin to like look at the style of a director like that or boil that down so you have some sort of expectation of what you're going to get 
That is a very good question. And I might have an answer, although it's very incomplete because a lot of Mike's films have not been released in the US. Mm-hmm. But from, from the ones that I've seen, uh, I think a good contrast to Mike would be Shinya Tsukamoto. So there's a book that was written by Tom Mess that was also called Agitator that we also stole, uh, that was an overview of Miike's films up to that time. He also wrote a book called Iron Man, which was over Shinya Tsukamoto. And in the book Agitator, there's uh, a diary that Miike wrote while he was writing, or while he was directing rather, Itchy the Killer. And he was comparing his shooting style to Tsukamoto's. So they're friends and they would often use each other's sets to, to shoot their movies. So while uh, Tsukamoto was shooting bullet ballet, Miike was shooting Itchy the Killer. And Miike got through his day and I think he finished eight or 10 scenes or something like that. And Tsukamoto was still working on one shot from bullet ballet. And Miike writes in his diary, he says like, this is why I will never defeat him, right? because he's, he's more meticulous, he's more particular, he's more into the, you know, this, that, and the other. Miike's style, because of that, actually comes from its anarchism and its ability to, to be fast, right? To be a little bit sloppy, um, to include completely tonally inconsistent ideas into a narrative where they shouldn't be. Um, Whereas somebody like Tsukamoto, his films, I think, are these, well, three or four of his films are these perfect encapsulations of a vision, right? Like he has with uh, Tetsuo, Tokyo Fist, Bullet Ballet, uh, maybe a few others. Kotoko, Kotoko is a good example of that, right? Like he's he's found this, this kind of perfect vision and distilled it. Miike is actually defined by his looseness, right? By his ability to genre hop and tone hop and, uh, you know, put out this, I think a good example would be the way that a lot of indie rappers do their thing now Mm -hmm. where they put out five or six mixtapes a year. And it's just like, you know, they go into the booth and they, whatever comes out of their head goes onto the mixtape. I think that Miike is actually closer to that. So what makes that interesting is that you get films that are less impressive and then films like, you know, Gozu or Itchy the Killer or Audition that I think are classics. But then also once he gets big, bigger properties like Terraformers or something like that, he's able to take this kind of goofy sci-fi big budget thing and inject a little bit of that spirit into it where some weird shit happens that wouldn't be present in a more constrained filmmakers movie okay i i I think i follow what you're saying with that it feels very uh early 20th century filmmaking where you would have a lot of these guys like john ford or or even hitchcock where they have so many films under their belt that they have directed and it's a very like workman approach um and I think in the West, uh, with filmmaking, and ironically, you know, you could probably make a case that uh, Eastern filmmaking is superior right now, anyway, um, to Western filmmaking. The directors are a lot more precious with their work. 
Um, mm-hmm. And that was not always the case. Somebody like John Ford directed n- not nearly as many as uh, Takashi Miike, but uh, certainly quite a lot. I think he was also like in the 50s or 40s, 60s. I don't know. And uh, that's not something that is really done anymore. And, uh, you know, there, there's certainly uh, outliers to that. That's not I, – I don't think that's a standard. I'm not that well-versed on Japanese cinema. I'm constantly pointed to as like the guy who's like – an Asian file or whatever, uh, by guests on the show or my co-host, but I, my, my knowledge for, for that is fairly limited, uh, in scope, especially compared to you two. Um, and, uh, the director we're talking about tonight, even though I think we're like 50 minutes, 45 minutes into the show, <laughs> we haven't even mentioned his name probably, uh, Park Chan-wook. He's only directed, I think about 13 films. Um, I did want to gauge what, uh, your level of knowledge and interest in his, uh, filmography. Well, I, I want to take this. I want to take this really quick because I think there's an interesting segue. I was watching Old Days, the documentary about Old Boy, mm. uh, and one thing that really struck me, I think, was the uh, they were talking about how when they were on set for Old Boy, there was a vibe to the whole thing. Everybody was excited about that project. People would talk about it constantly after the shooting was done. They'd go get some drinks and they were constantly talking about the script and how to make it better. And everybody was just into it. And I think that uh, just to kind of wrap up my previous point, you know, there's, there's a muse, right? There is a muse and she shows up when she wants to. And some people choose to keep making movies when that muse isn't there just to kind of keep the, the juices flowing and other people are patient and they wait more like Park Chan-wook, right? But I'm a, so old boy, I bought, I bought the Tartan Asia Extreme DVD of it in 2003, I want to say from a Sam Goody. And it changed my whole shit, especially that, you know, hallway fight scene. I thought that was like the coolest shit that I'd ever seen. Tartan Um, was great. Uh, That I have fond memories for that brand. That's how I got introduced to a lot of Japanese films and and Korean films mm -hmm. 20 years ago. I didn't get the uh, the Tartan old boy. I actually got like off of Amazon. It was in retrospect. It was like a Chinese bootleg of it that they sold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But I got uh, Battle Royale that way through Tartan Extreme. Yeah, yeah. The first the first Korean movie maybe that I ever saw was A Tale of Two Sisters from uh, from Tartan. Um, But I yeah I'm very familiar i think i've seen i i haven't i actually funny enough i haven't seen jsa um but i've seen uh most of his other movies old boy thirst i'm a cyborg the handmaiden didn't see stoker um what else oh all the vengeance movies right sympathy lady uh and then this one so i think i'm pretty caught up for the most part I've seen the Vengeance trilogy, um, which actually I would say is fucking classic and rewatchable as old boy is, uh, and especially as like gleefully fucked up as that ending is. Um, I think Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance is like my favorite of his still. Uh, I love raw energy of kind of, I know it wasn't his first movie, but like kind of like, early beginnings of of these kind of creative geniuses always have like that uh that uninhibited like spark that yeah. is hard to replicate afterwards um 
the handmaiden fucking i actually wrote uh i wrote an essay about the handmaiden for um a felonious valentine segment on the hard-boiled wonderland uh film blog uh where are the other ones this one have you seen cyborg i'm a cyborg but that's okay i haven't seen Cyborg. that one's that one's really good yeah that one's and it's kind of different from it's actually maybe one of the most park chan wook movies that he's made it's very very kind of uh orchestral and artistic right but uh it's really good it's really good too this one was good i i think um that yeah, that's my response to it. Is I think it's good. I think um, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, you know I I have some problems with it, but I still I enjoy every single one of his movies that I watch, even if I'm not vibing with them. To to what you were saying, Kelby, um, sympathy for Mr. Vengeance definitely. You know, there's this thing with filmmakers where it seems like they have their first movie and their second movie, and then they have their their real first movie. So like with Kubrick. You know, he did Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, but his real first movie feels like The Killing. And then he does Paths of Glory. And that's when he, like, develops his, his like, texture uh, as a filmmaker, as a director. With Park Chan-wook, I agree that it feels like Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance is really where he gets into gear and he knows what he's doing as a director. Um, he did a couple of films before that. The very first one, it's, it was kind of hard to track down for a long period of time. It's called The Moon is the Sun's Dream. And he directed it, I think, when he was like 29 or 30 years old. It's a cheap budget. Um, the acting is kind of whatever, but it's very like aesthetic and sort of like a Hong Kong cinema, not late 1980s kind of way. The lighting is like aping that and the, just like general feel of it. Uh, you know, it's mob related and kind of, uh, you know, one of those types of like love stories. It, it, it's, it's all right. Um, and then he does a movie I have not seen. It's the only movie of his I haven't seen because there hasn't been... English subtitles release of it. It's a film called Trio, and I guess it's a comedy. I guess it's a romantic comedy. That was very uh, mid-90s. And then he does JSA. JSA is like the, the first one that really puts him on the map. And he has like disowned it. I bought the Arrow copy of it. Arrow did a, a restoration recently on um, 4K Blu-ray. And I think it's a, like a pretty standard by the numbers, uh, like, Korean political action thriller. Um, and then he gets into the Vengeance trilogy. And I think then you're really, you're really getting good with, with the films. Um, Cooking with gas. Yeah. This movie, um, Decision to Leave, feels like a few of his earlier movies. I was getting a lot of the vibes from like Thirst, if you guys have mm -hmm. seen that movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, maybe, maybe the Vengeance trilogy uh, a smidge. But it feels, I don't want to say it feels devoid of style because he's trying different things with the camera and, um, you know, he's so clever sometimes with the shot composition and, and the editing. But there's something missing here. There's mm -hmm. something, there's like uh, just a veneer that you come to expect from Park Chan-wook's filmmaking that is not present. And another thing that really bothered me, and maybe this is just because I know that he got paid to do a short film earlier this year with the uh, iPhone 13. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so much product placement for Apple in this movie. It's unbelievable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, just iPhones galore. Uh, you know, it, it's ridiculous. You see it from inside the iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a shot yeah. from inside yeah. where you see the thumb go like this. And yep. Like yeah. click something. <laughs> so now, that, I, uh, that got on my nerves, but yeah. I think that like 
what's so interesting about Park, well, not just Park Chan-wook actually, but Korean film in general, is that all their movies seem to be divided into perfect thirds, right? Mm. More so than American movies. And it's not following a Joseph Campbell hero's journey. It's like three separate short films that get put together. The best example of this is not a Park Chan-wook film, but uh, have you seen The Wailing? I think I have, but it's been uh, maybe some time since I've seen it. When did it come out? It came out in 2000 and... Was it 16? 16? Yeah, 16, 17, something like that. But that's a movie that goes from like police procedural to comedy to cosmic horror. And it's got this, uh, well, not cosmic horror. It's like satanic devil horror kind of thing. But Park Chan book seems to follow this path very similarly, where the first third of Decision to Leave is a noir action thriller. And he's even got the old boy hallway fight scene in the form of that, I guess, drone shot of them chasing each other across rooftops, which I thought was really cool. And then it moves into sort of the the second half where it's the end of your standard American movie. That's where it would end. He would find out that this, uh, you know, Chinese woman killed her husband and, you know, and you lied to me and then that would just be it. And then there's another third, which is let's jump, you know, 18 months in the future and kind of see what happens. But in terms of uh, the style of it, I, I think that your product placement criticism is really valid because I think that there's a real problem right now with cell phones in movies and how easy they make some things to have happen, but how right. completely uninteresting they are. Right. Like when he goes through the old woman's cell phone to find out that on this day she took steps when she's not supposed to take steps. That's not, there's nothing interesting or organic about that. Right. It's like, it's a fucking phone. We all deal with these stupid things. So I I think that that might be a part of what makes it feel so kind of like "Eh." maybe if cell phones didn't exist, this would be interesting. And it's so much of the plot. So much of the plot has to do with the iPhone 13 and disposing. And him texting his texting his girlfriend behind his wife's back. Yeah, (laughs) it's just it's like a whole third of the movie is is that. And um, I don't know. It just it it bugged me a little bit. You know, I did watch his. uh, He did a short film back in like 2008 or 2009, uh, and this was the first time he took Apple's money. And he shot a short film called Night Fishing with the iPhone 4. And I watched that right before I watched uh, Decision to Leave. And even that shot on the iPhone 4 uh, is just like, you know, visually, you know, it, the flair of that is, is so much greater than this movie, which is not even to say that I dislike this movie. I think I gave it like three and a half stars on Letterboxd or something. But for one of his films, I, I guess I've just come to expect more. And I really enjoyed The Handmaiden. I think everybody enjoyed The Handmaiden. Um, yeah, I, so it, it just kind of felt like, all right, you're, you're retreading some steps you've already taken. You're not really saying anything new or different with this movie. Um, you know, what, what is this all about? It's, it seems like a, I don't know, it seems like a step back um, from his potential post-Handmaiden. I think I'd enjoy it more watching it a second time because those expectations are what kind of like, and I did like it, but I had to like come to terms with 
what it was mm-hmm. that it wasn't gonna really blow me away or whatever um or even have that like missing and maybe by the end of this we'll be able to articulate what about the what wookism is missing from it um because it, it, there was just some element that like i didn't even i forgot it was a park chan wook movie like halfway through watching it and then remember like on the pirate site i was watching saw the little like you know my screen minimized and i saw his name in the credits there before i fixed the screen and was like oh yeah it's a park chan wook movie forgot but uh because it it does do some interesting things with setting up um i mean the movie itself we're coming at it with the expectations we have of park chan wook but in the movie, if you've never seen a Park Chan-wook film, it's also giving you false expectations by presenting you with like this sort of detective story that turns into this romance in a weird way. He's like bumbling this case on purpose to keep getting closer to who he already, he knows she's the murderer within like 10 minutes of the movie and the rest of its two hour plus runtime, he's kind of like trying to maintain a relationship with her. And uh, I mean, that is an interesting flip on the kind of cat and mouse thing of being like- But if that got more interesting, right? Like if she kept doing things and he kept progressively having to cover up for what she was doing and like, and his, that would have been, I think, a more interesting, intense direction for it to go to. Whereas in this, it seems like nobody really cares. It's like, well, well she didn't do it. Why? Because eh. that's when it does so. get more interesting, right? Which it does. It happens kind of like rhythmically, a little late. Is when she does do it again. Like she kills the her next husband. She sets him up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, does she? She sets him up. Yeah. She basically, she kills the, she kills the guy's mom and gets, uh, gets the crazy Chinese drug dealer who said, if my mother dies, I'm going to kill your husband. Right. So she, she gives, she gives her one of those little fentanyl pills that she has to, uh, to kill her that sets, sets the guy off to stab him to death. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean like that's, that's, it needed something to kind of ramp it up. I think the time jump was really weird. I think that uh, I get that he was trying to tell a love story with this, but it, it kind of, when it all starts happening at the end, not to like just jump right into it and we can do spoilers on this podcast, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like when she's talking to him in the car and she's saying that, you know, I knew that I knew that you loved me at this point, which is when he was covering up evidence about her. And she was like, but love is a thing that you can't say or it stops to it, it stops existing and then kills herself. I thought that was all very poetic and kind of devastating, right? Like I've been in sort of a funk the past couple of days after watching that ending because I think the ending is so well done, but there's nothing going on, right? That that keeps it going. I thought this, I actually thought this was going to be a Park Chan-wook's kind of Paul Verhoeven basic instinct movie. Uh, and I got something very different. Uh, that would have been a much better direction for it to go in. You're right. It just kind of meanders uh, throughout the the entire middle section of the film. It doesn't do anything that's 
striking uh, for, I guess, his, his you know, work. Um, you see so many different, more dysfunctional relationships in his other movies uh, that are probably just as believable as this one that, uh, I don't know, it just, it feels mm, I, I, gutless. Right, because like Thirst is like that, right? Yeah. Where the guy, like, you know, this this girl that he's into becomes a vampire and like she keeps escalating the stakes that he has to keep cleaning it up. So if that kind of idea was applied to this movie, it might've worked a little bit better. Uh, like there's elements of this that are even found in Stoker and that wasn't a script of his. That was from, I think, Wentworth Miller who was the star of Prison Break. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's even, and I consider that one of his like low tier films. Uh, it's probably done better or at least more interesting in, in that movie. Uh, I don't know. What is your, uh, not really related to Park Chan-wook, but I guess kind of a bit. Uh, what are your thoughts on Bong Joon-ho? Because I, you know, he obviously had Parasite blow up in 2019. And uh, prior to Parasite, I think I maybe only enjoyed one or two of his films. And I felt like the reputation he had garnered here in America was kind of undeserved and, and Park Chan-wook should have been that guy, mm. you know? But mm. um, mm -hmm. I I don't know. After this movie, I'm kind of like, damn, did you fall off, dude? Are you, are you done? <laughs> are you washed up? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just want to get your, you guys' thoughts on Bong Joon-ho as a director. I love Memories of Murder. Um, I think that's a great movie. Which the, the lead guy in this movie is the suspect in Memories of Murder. Really? Years ago. Yeah. I didn't know oh, that. Um, okay. Until oh, okay. Right before this show. Because I was like, you know, this, this lead, and maybe that's a problem too, is you don't have a lot of Park Chan-wook's regulars. Uh, mm -hmm. The bodyguard from Old Boy is the dead husband, I believe, at the beginning of the film. He mm -hmm. pops up on the phone mm -hmm. lock screen. And uh, there might be like one other player who pops mm. up in many of his films. But yeah, the, uh, the protagonist in this film is the, uh, the murder suspect from Memories of Murder. Not a good leading guy. That was actually no. that was my biggest criticism of this movie was that the leading man does not seem, he looks like he would be the kind of guy who, you know, goes home, uh, you know, has a little bit of soju and like listens to Bach or something and then, you know, goes to sleep. Like, he doesn't, he has nothing about him that's, that says insomniac detective about him, right? Like there's nothing gritty or interesting about this guy. Um, but I, I did like Parasite. Uh, I know that uh, Parasite got a, a bunch of praise when it came out and then there was some Parasite revisionism, but I thought it was really good. Um, I liked uh, I liked Pig. I like Snowpiercer. Um, Bong Joon Ho is he's fine to me, but I would agree that Park Chan Wook is in kind of an infinitely more talented filmmaker. And he has an annoying reputation in America because his big. When I started seeing Americans really latch on to Bong Joon Ho was from his like his. I, I like and even love the majority of what I've seen of his, but his dog shit movie, Okja, that was on uh, Netflix, yeah. was when I really saw people like talking Bong Joon-ho this and Bong Joon-ho that. And then when Parasite came out, it was like, 
from that sect of people, like the majority Normie America seemed to be like, oh, the guy who directed Okja and not just like- yeah, That's know, a pig, that's that's the pig movie I liked. I, I liked Okja. <laughs> David likes a bunch of garbage ass movies though. I do, yeah. He was like, uh, you see well, Turning Red? The Criterion I like Collection turning agrees red. with you. They just, they took in Okja recently, the Criterion Collection, so. Criterion did? Yes. That's what's up. History will vindicate me. <laughs> uh but yeah i saw who did i see um i think it was that was it even hans maybe who made a twitter post recently that was calling bong joon ho uh the joss we korea's joss whedon no that was uh that was uh uh blower guys that was blower yeah oh Oh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) i uh i mean i can i can see where that's I don't really I don't agree with the Bong Joon-ho slander I think that he's a I think he's a good filmmaker I think his movies are fun um I think yeah I don't think it's his fault uh like I don't I don't want to put any blame on him and I I do think think Parasite is really good I think it's I think Parasite's a really good movie um I think that it it escalates in like a kind of cool Hitchcockian sort of way um the ending doesn't necessarily uh deliver on what it builds up to but i thought it was i thought it was pretty cool i liked the i like that movie i i thought it was great as well uh and this is a clear instance of like you have to separate the fan base or, or rather the american fan base from the director in this case because it makes me not want to like anything of his when i see people fawning over him on twitter and it's always like that particular crowd of people but i find him to be very hot and cold uh and i you know i have this hang up in general but especially with him because he tries to do these big international epics like snowpiercer is one of these movies where he's like we're gonna grab american actors and english actors and french actors and we're gonna use korean actors and i think when he tries to do that he overshoots it and winds up failing And i thought what was great about parasite is he kept it korean you know, he returned back to that. Okja's another one like that, where he's got like a, a you know, a you know, giant panel of different uh, international stars. Uh, Parasite is just kind of like a local story for him, and I thought mm-hmm. he nailed it. And I really enjoy uh, many of his early films, like Mother. And Mother, uh, Mother's great. Mother's the host, amazing. yeah. The host is amazing. I mean, like those are those, they're really solid, well-made movies that are made with that more Korean sensibility that feels just a little bit different from American movies that I think made him really kind of take off. But Mother, yeah, Mother, uh, I'm trying to figure out what I think his best movie is. It's either Mother or Memories of Murder. It's one of those two. But Mother, Mother's really good. Um, especially that scene where she is in the, like the machine operators, like uh, shop right mm. and it's kind of uh like that's like the the the, the suspect dude uh, yeah either mother or memories of murder or the host those early three are really good people try to like take back the host uh the ones who are like big fans of oak just no piercer and then of course parasite um the like american annoying fan base uh has tried to like claim the host as one of these you know he's a he's a political director whatever oh yeah i do i do hate that yeah 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 yeah. and it's like the host 
is about how all these like it's really a story about the father in a lot of ways yeah who who is like i mean the main core i remember watching that movie thinking like this is about a father who was like these fucking kids i what where did i go wrong Mm-hmm. it's not like a celebration of their libtardism or whatever you know it's like uh, and i think that's where the backlash from parasite comes from right because you know it's clearly a social commentary thing going on and he's got like the indian headdress on at the end which could be read a certain way i guess but i don't know man i just thought it was a good movie i just had a fun time at the movies when i saw parasite so I mean, same with Okja. I know there's like heavy, like animal rights shit going on with that, but I thought it was goofy and fun. It kind of reminded me of Southland Tales in a way. Um, so like that might be his, uh, his Southland Tales. Do you guys think that uh, Asian cinema, and uh, when I say Asian cinema, I really just mean Japanese and Korean, uh, has reached a point where there might be any sort of decline similar to how Western cinema Mm -hmm. has been uh, going. Yes. I went to Seoul a few years ago. I spent a month in Seoul and I feel like Seoul is going through this beautiful Renaissance, uh, probably what America looked like in the eighties where people just go out and they drink and they buy shit and it's this whole materialist thing, but the crash is coming. And with that crash will come the artistic crash as well. So yes, we're going to get a lot of, especially after Squid Game, uh, which I feel might have been astroturfed a little bit. Anything that comes from a streaming service, I feel like it's astroturfed Um, because like, how can you watch all that? And then at the end, you have a protagonist with like bright red hair like that and not think that it's like the goofiest shit that you've ever seen, but like they, but they did it anyway. Did you notice Um, like his face really got like flared up with acne as well? And uh I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I Uh just kept looking at his face. was like, damn, did he have cystic acne? He was hiding all this time or what's with his face? Why does he look like Two-Face all of a sudden? It's because the, it's because the squid game stressed him out. Um, but I think that I, I think that Squid Game actually might be the turning point that you're talking about for Korean cinema, at least, where we're going to start seeing more dog shit come out of Korea, um, which and is a shame. Na Hong Jin kind of disappeared, didn't he? Like I haven't seen it since The Wailing. You brought that. That was like almost seven years ago now. Yeah, and that yeah. was like the dude. Like he did the Chaser. Uh, the mm-hmm. yellow sea. yellow sea yeah and i saw mm-hmm. the x-rated version of the yellow sea before, dude uh, that I... fight scene with the hammer in in yellow sea is so hard Fuck. it's so good um yeah no i don't i mean it's all this this corporate takeover right of things that makes everything worse and once they found out they can make millions of dollars by just kind of being korean uh <laughs> it's gonna make everything suck that much worse. k-pop right yeah did k-pop ruin korean mm-hmm. cinema <laughs> my wife loves k-pop so much i'd like i've she had tickets to bts which is a big k-pop group that that got canceled because of covid so it's the one good thing that covid did but uh <laughs> yeah i mean i have to say i i feel like there was a point where you could check out like any big Korean uh, adult like crime film uh, for a period of time, and you'd be able to take something away from it, even if it wasn't the best, uh, whether that be like good acting or performances or just 
I don't know, some maybe story element that that sticks out is different. But you check out anything that's on Netflix, for example, because Netflix has a big international audience, obviously. So they throw a bunch of Indian stuff and Korean stuff and whatever it might be. You check out anything on there that's been hyped as like, ooh, this is like a good action film, crime thriller. Um, and it sucks. It's all direct. It feels the same thing as like the American ones that they throw up on there. Like, uh, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the that Miles Teller, uh, what is it, Chris Hemsworth movie that just came out on there. I, I don't even remember the title. It's all shit. It's all just very generic by the numbers, kind of predictable. The humor is always the same. It's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of taking shape, I, I think, in a different way in Korea. But, it, you know, that sort of expectedness is really settling in. You mentioned something earlier that I wanted to follow up on. And now might be a good time. You mentioned films having texture. Mm. What does that mean? I guess it goes a little bit beyond just a, uh, aesthetic. You know, I look at mm -hmm. filmmakers and uh, sometimes writers as having uh, like texture periods, like Spike Lee, for example. Um, when we were talking earlier about, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, spiritually, the first film is not the first film. It might be the third or fourth film that they do. Mm -hmm. If you take a look at uh, his work, he has a certain texture period in the early 90s or I guess it starts in 89 with Do the Right Thing. And then you see Mo Better Blues, which has like, it, it has nothing to do with Do the Right Thing. It's not even like the same time period, same scene, but there's just that directorial uh, style that's embedded in there that carries through no matter what he's covering. Um, and then you see it in Jungle Fever and Crooklyn and Malcolm X. And it kind of stops after a while because he tries to do something a little bit different. He gets a little more money. He's doing like Nike commercials, uh, Michael Jordan commercials. He does uh, Summer Sam. He does. I do like that movie. I, th I it, thought that one was good. It, it's it's. I mean, all, a lot of his movies from that period are, are overlooked or they don't get the credit that they're worth. He Got Game is another great film. That's a good um, one. Yeah. And then it comes to a halt again. That That's its own like thing. And you have like all these different periods of varying styles where even if it has nothing to do with, like there's no connecting elements, there's still something there. There's still, still something to that that you can point to or feel or pick up on. So there's like these different things. And I feel like with Park Chan-wook, the Vengeance trilogy up to maybe Thirst is sort of like one texture period mm -hmm. in his filmmaking. Uh, uh, in his filmmaking. So... I don't know. I don't know if I'm communicating that. That no, that way. I think I so. Know, in but... writing, it comes across in like a in content. Well, I guess in any art medium, it, it content is part of it, like what is actually in the thing. Mm -hmm. But also, like in writing, it kind of comes across in like voice. Um, in music, you can get the it, the texture is a little more obvious because it's just auditory. You're hearing like this music doesn't have as much drums as it used to or whatever uh but film is like this cocktail of all different things going on and you can just tell that the cocktail is like watered down like a lot like there's not that that richness that spike to it that age to it um there's it's kind of like the reason uh like with with a good podcast you're never going to uh what's what's the word uh you're never gonna explain yourself cushion your statement um 
Yeah, you're you're not going to quit. You're not going to equivocate. I'm legitimately retarded. Uh, you're not going to equivocate, right? When you when you are performing in a podcast radio medium, because people hate hearing that shit. Um, film has like modern film kind of has this equivocation Ooh, that you can like that. you can sense in the way it's every it, it's everything it's not just the content it's not just the obvious diversity hires and the wrong roles it's not um it's not just the screenwriting it, it, i mean it's all of it it's mm-hmm. not just the way it's shot uh you can just feel that they're so on edge like it's like every the director the production company has a gun to their head and it's like you better not let any teeth show in this is it is it possible that when is it possible that these people ran out of ideas like is park chan wook out of ideas was spike lee out of ideas he hasn't made anything good uh the five bloods and the sweet blood of Jesus and oh, all this sweet shit. Blood like, of Jesus was, oh, that was atrocious. That was horrible. It's, it's, it's I, just, I, is he out of ideas it. though? Like, is, I, is it just hmm. a thing where like, he's he like, is there a time where you should be like David Lynch and start building cabinets and waiting and then eventually make the return, which is brilliant and then do nothing because you don't have anything to say. Like, do these people get caught in this, uh, and as artists, should we be cognizant of this? The idea that you get caught in this, uh, you know, constant production churn of things when you really should just shut the fuck up for 10, 15, 20 years and then do something else. I think it's possible. I think it depends. I mean, it's obviously case by case. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's... There's examples of that rule for certain, and um, I do think there's examples that, that go against that. But it also depends on who you're collaborating with, who you're working with. Um, you know, Kevin Smith, who, for who's, example. Who's, who's your most consistent filmmaker That's who just like question. throughout throughout their career, just banger after banger? And even when they're not a banger, it's still kind of a banger? Uh, would you say like currently active filmmaker? Or- sure. I would think of somebody like Cronenberg or uh, for me, well, I can't even really say that about Miike because he's been directing like girl group uh, <laughs> music videos and shit like, so I, I can't even say that about my favorite. I mean, Shinya Sukamoto's last three movies have been dog shit on a level that is just, it's unbelievable that this is the guy who made Tetsuo and Tokyo Fist, the guy who made Nightmare Detective, made Bullet Ballet. It's like it's almost unfathomable to me. So like it's 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 hard. But yeah, Lynch, Cronenberg, maybe um, Tarantino. I think Tarantino. Yeah, yeah Tarantino. Is... Uh, that's also because his output is so concentrated and spaced out. Like yeah. uh, he's not gonna half-ass anything that he does it's tough to say uh, among like active filmmakers who might fit that, that role. Um, Sony, eh? well, hold the dark. He, he went to hold the dark and then it was shitty. Yeah. So. 
So he had two. Sony had two movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, do people, I guess this is a deeper artistic question because Kelby and I talk often about being these production powerhouses. We're very inspired by the work of an author named uh, Stephen Graham Jones, who has put out, you know, 50, 60 books and just keeps like chunking them out. And they're always good. Always good. Yeah. And that, but, that's like, he's a good example of like, kind of, um, what I was saying with the equivocation thing and relating it to like voice and writing and writing, he has that voice, why it's so consistent. Um, and Mike is consistent in like mm-hmm. how it feels like Mike did it, even if it's like, I'm not watching yeah. this girl superhero uh, sort of weird, questionably um, chosen thing that- Tsukamoto, not so much, but yes, Mike, um, yes. Yes. Mike, yeah it, it does still have that Mike ism to it and uh yeah jones is is that way 100 percent. like his shit so the, reads. the question is like you know with somebody like jones he keeps having ideas they keep being bangers other people and i maybe this is me right like maybe maybe some of us have like 10 good ideas and and you have to parse out how you present those 10 good ideas because decision to leave is uh for how good it is and for all the things i like about it it's a movie that could not exist right like i i wouldn't want a world where old boy doesn't exist or sympathy or lady or even thirst uh you know or even or especially like cyborg right Mm-hmm. But like decision to leave is so disappointing because it's a movie that if it never got made and somebody in a Borgesian, uh, you know, alternate reality sense was to write a fake review about decision to leave, you'd be like, well, so who cares? Who cares that that one didn't get made? It doesn't matter. Right. I don't even think it, uh, you know, peels back his reputation at all because I mean, it- you know, I think there's something where if this was more of a flop, I think that he actually won like a best director award at, at sure. Can or, or, yeah, or one, one of these sure big can. festivals. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. If it had flopped, if there was this kind of lukewarm reaction similar to what we're having, you know, he might feel like he has to prove himself and come back a little bit harder the next time around. But it's not. They're, I mean, they're so eager to pat him on the back. And I think that's dangerous for somebody as talented as Park Chan-wook. Now, as far as like anyone who's delivering like a consistent output to your your question before, the closest that comes to mind for me anyway, I don't know how you guys feel about this guy, is maybe like Lars von Trier, Mm -hmm. uh, where at least his movies are interesting, even if they're not particularly good. Safdie Brothers have been good so far. Um, there, it's the, the the book has yet to be written on those guys is is fun yeah. and I love it's, them. it's um, early yeah yeah it's early but yeah they've all you know they just kind of developed their style Good Time is their first film even if it's not their first film right so yeah um, we'll see as long They're as shooting. as long as Necro as long as Necro is in their movies I think they'll be good Necro's their muse <laughs> yeah yeah uh, they're doing another movie in January with Sandler it's going to be a, a sports film so that's mm-hmm. where they're going next uh, Lars von Trier. Is probably my my closest truest answer to that. I would want it to be Reffin. Nicholas Winding Reffin was my favorite director for a period of time, mm-hmm. and uh, Too Old to Die Young was 
was i mean he's a very indulgent director but that was just that was, that was too far for me and it became park park's my favorite director now um but mm -hmm. i'm interested in uh, have you guys seen the uh the trailer to his series that's going to netflix i'm very interested because so the refin thing is super interesting because too old to die young got so many people fired at amazon it mm. was this huge disaster where amazon basically gave people money to make these auteur films there was a too Old to Die Young, there was Tokyo Vampire Hotel and, uh, with Sion Sano yep. and a few others. And they did so poorly that a lot of people's careers were wrecked with that. And it's so, I, I'm fascinated by the kind of magnetism that somebody like a Refn has to be able to go to Netflix and be like, hey, I just, I just destroyed your competitors they i destroyed them so bad that they had to put a billion dollars into a lord of the rings series that nobody likes <laughs> mm -hmm. uh so how about it how about give me like give me like 20 million dollars i'll make something cool and they're like okay yeah i mean you're good so that that kind of charisma and, and magnetism is super interesting to me um I, i'm looking forward to it I love his movies. I think that the Lars von Trier thing is really interesting because he, did you watch that interview with him? That video interview where like, he's sick, he's sick and he's dying. He, and he's like, is it the one this where is, he's in a bathrobe and he's shaking? Uh, yeah, I think, well, it starts off, he's fishing. And then, yeah, I think that's in there. But basically the idea is that like, he's coming up on the end um, and he knows it. And I don't know. Yeah, he just, he made them, he made them count. I, I wasn't blown away by the house that Jack built. Um, I thought that one was, uh, I, I don't know. That one just didn't come together for me. Did you like that one? I, I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was his funniest movie. So that's really <laughs> one meal. It is. Over. It is. It is pretty funny. It's funny, mm -hmm. especially at the end where he has them all in like that kind of like Mexican standoff, like kind of like they're they're all sort of just like posed with guns, yeah, aimed at them and shit. It's like so that. absurd. Yeah. So yeah. I I yeah. really enjoyed that aspect of it. I found Matt Dillon uh, hilarious in that movie. Um, or where so he's like he's like sniping that that lady's kid. They're on like the hunting range and shit. Mm -hmm. Fucking blows the kid's head off. Yeah, yeah. Was... It's so over the top in a way that only Lars really has an interest in doing. I don't. I don't think it's his best. I, you know, uh, a lot of his recent films, everything like post Antichrist, has kind of been like its own thing uh, in his filmography, and they they all have like this sort of Tarantino novel esque feel to them where they're just enormous mm -hmm. think pieces of his um and i i would probably cite nymphomaniac i just both volumes is maybe the strongest of that oh that's definitely his best movie for sure yeah, yeah. nymphomaniac one and two or antichrist those two are like neck and neck for me but mm -hmm. yeah i love antichrist i also love everything we you brought up ref and i actually i would change my answer to him actually you were like, yeah, uh, is consistent as fuck in my book. Um, I loved Too Old to Die Young as a troll film. Yeah, yeah me too. The, uh, I mean, I don't really want to rewatch it because <laughs> that was um, a torture that I willingly 
sat through, but uh, there were pl- there were enough payoffs for me. Mm-hmm. I think his um, whole uh, metamorphosis from being like this gritty masculine filmmaker to I'm gonna have like violent, beautiful, feminine art pieces, and those are gonna be my movies is, is very unique and very different from a lot of his uh, contemporaries. Uh, the Pusher trilogy is uh, still, I think, to this day, just infinitely watchable. Excellent. Pusher two, in, in particular, is yeah. just like so yeah. good. That's yeah. the best one. Yeah, like the 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 kind of uh, film nerdy, arty answer is Pusher three. Mm-hmm. Pusher three has a lot of cool shit in it, but Pusher two is just like the the pure cinema movie that he made. Like that's that's. That's really good. But I, I mean, my favorite is drive. <laughs> it's the boring one. It's the boring one. And that, I thought that that was great. The pusher trilogy uh, features the lack of that equivocate, that filmic equivocation mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I was trying to mm-hmm. express because it has that, um, it has the visual texture to it with the more, you know, the less digitally clean look. It also has the like sort of, naturalistic acting that's not not overacting not method acting not like it it just feels like the people exist as the characters that they are uh you've got scripts full of casual uh slurs being tossed around which i just think is i love seeing it not because of some like uh yeah i love saying nigger it's just like (laughs) You do love it, saying that, though. But it's just it, it, people people say it, and you know, in certain um, groups, you can you can get by not saying. I saw something recently that was really interesting that pointed out uh, uh, Method Man in the past, like I want to say ten, maybe they said even the past twenty years, Method Man has not cursed in a single verse which is crazy because method man, right? Like I'm a cut up in your throat and start fucking it. And like, like the, like method man. Um, so there are ways to, uh, get around certain content without feeling like you're toothless. And I think it's, it comes from intent. Like if you were walking on eggshells, that's gonna register yeah if you're just doing shit like you said with refin his whole thing with the like powerful female it feels like it's coming from a place of like i don't know it's not coming from a place of like oh i need to like have a strong woman uh, you know portrayed in my films now it just it feels like it's coming from a more genuine place wherever it's coming from it doesn't register as that kind of like uh pandering you know as much as like some of the more cushy especially with like crime films these days it's like people they're not edgy enough for any of this to for me to buy any of this mm-hmm. yeah i will never have a bad word to say about nicholas winning refin because he published me and he paid me the most money that i've ever made from writing something that i've ever been paid what so all published? of his films are uh, on his site, on the BNWR site, he published one of my novellas. He, oh, nice. he really loved it and uh, and put it up there. It's called uh, Heartland, U- Oklahoma Heartland, USA. And uh, yeah, 
I got my money on time and it was a way more money than I make from indie publishing. So all of his films are fantastic. I have no <laughs> notes about any of them. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to check that out uh, mm -hmm. once we wrap up here, which we should probably do now. It's almost one o'clock here. So, sure. yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, you know, we hardly talked about the movie, but uh, you don't need to see it if you're listening to this show. It's just kind of whatever. It's fine. It's, it's, a, a, it, it's a noir movie where the cop falls in love with the femme fatale and they, you know, they do their thing. Yeah. All right. It, best suicide scene, though. That was yeah. a yeah. wild ass suicide scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy way to commit suicide. All right, fellas, it's been great having you two on, and uh, I'd like to do something in the future with you guys, maybe with Hans here, Hans present for the show. So uh, sure. we'll have to figure that out. Sorry for all the rescheduling issues and almost again tonight. But uh, all right, uh, where can people find you online for those who are, are listening right now? Where do, where do you want to direct them? Uh, I'm at HeathenishKid on Twitter. Uh, I think you can pretty much link up there and wherever else i want you to find me at you can chase the rabbit hole if you'd yep. like at, at twitter brbgdo come follow me read right. broken river books that's that's it that's all i got terrific all right if you want to send me a link or something i'll include that in the description as well cool. uh again it's been a pleasure talking about asian cinema with you guys so uh that has been movies for this week thank you for listening. I can't kill this call. My mouse is dead. Oh, shit. Uh, all right. We're back. Okay. 